Hey, this is Alfredo, host of Behind the Veil, the podcast you're listening to right now. You may have noticed I haven't published an episode in a while. I've been crazy busy with taking care of bees. I help run a company that sets up hives in people's backyards and tends to them. Actually, I talk about this company in episode one, which I made before I even joined. So my days lately are filled with driving across the city from hive to hive, teaching people about bees. I'm not the only one, we're a tiny team of three, and the hives take up a lot of our time, so this podcast kind of fell on the back burner for a bit. I want that to change, so I have a plan, which I'm going to tell you about later. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. Manuel Giannoni Guzman didn't plan to spend the last 10 years studying bees. When he started his research, he had never even opened a hive. I had never done any beekeeping, nor I didn't even knew what it entailed. But then, as an undergrad, he got the opportunity to study learning and memory in bees. With uh, Dr. Tugrul Girai in his lab in the University of Puerto Rico, Manuel and his professor were studying nurse bees. These are really young bees, just a couple of days old, and their job in the hive is to feed the larvae, in other words, the baby bees. So my first day in lab, they, they tell me these are nurse bees and they just hand me some nurse bees. Here's the thing about nurse bees. They're so young that they can't sting yet. Sometimes when I'm inspecting a hive in front of someone new, I'll scoop up nurse bees with my bare hand just to show them how gentle bees are. I'm telling you this to really illustrate the fact that nurse bees do not sting. Well, at least not usually. Never say never. Lo and behold, I get stung by a one-day-old bee. <laughs> so my first day of like just handling a bee, not, not even the hive itself, right? Uh, I get stung and I think he was afraid that I was going to leave the lab and never come back. Of course, he didn't. As goes the stories with all born-to-be beekeepers in their first honeybee experience, Manuel was hooked. I mean, I kind of just fell in love after a semester of research and just did not look back and been doing it for, like you say, more than 10 years now. Gosh. It wasn't the stinging he fell in love with, obviously. It was all the things people don't realize bees can do. For example, foraging. Most people think, oh, they just go to flowers at random times. They pick nectar, they come back to the colony, they make honey, but it's a lot more intricate than that. They remember the time of day that the flower is optimal for them to go and actually get that nectar. They can remember several times a day for different flowers at different locations. They know how to get back to their house, which is something that we as humans don't even learn until we're like 10, 12 years old. Fast forward to today, and Manuel is a postdoctoral research fellow at Vanderbilt University. There, he's working to answer a lot of questions we still have about honeybees. One of those questions is how do pesticides affect bees? And I know what you're thinking. Don't we already know that? Don't we know pesticides kill bees? But it's actually not that simple. For the longest time, we, when these pesticides were introduced, Basically, they were telling people, oh, it's safe for the bees, it's safe for the bees. But then we started seeing all these sublethal effects. So the pesticides were not necessarily killing the bees, but they were actually doing other things. So we had the question initially, is this affecting 
the circadian system, which is what we study. Manuel and his colleagues wanted to know if pesticides affect the internal clock of bees, the one that rules their sleep patterns. But before we get into the design of the experiment and then the results, I want to address the skeptics listening who may think bees don't sleep. You know, whenever I say bee and sleep in the same sentence, I get a lot of eye rolls. There are two camps out there. Those who think sleep is reserved for mammalian animals, and those who think insects sleep too. So there's basically these two camps right now, but the prevailing thought right now and what's winning out is basically that there is sleep in insects. Yep, you heard that right. A Vanderbilt scientist says bees sleep. Case closed, don't at me on Twitter or whatever. Just just kidding. I don't have a Twitter or any Twitter followers. Um, all right, here's why Manuel thinks that. Now, over the past 20 years, a lot of people and a lot of researchers have actually looked at what would be considered sleep in fruit flies and sleep in bees. And we see all these things that are actually very analogous to the mammalian side of things. Now, we can put electrodes in a bee or in a fly and look at sleep states. We, we're not able to do that at this point, which is how sleep was defined. But we do see things like sleep rebound, which is what happens when you like stay awake all night and then go to sleep. You're going to sleep until later because you're going to try to recoup that sleep. I had the feeling this would be a sticking point. So I asked him to share some more specific examples of experiments that prove bees sleep. The, the best example I can give you is, like, you know, when you're a teenager and you have to go to school, but your mom has to drag you away from the bed. So imagine this type of experiment, which has been done. You try to, you poke a bee basically until it moves. If it's awake, it's going to respond immediately and you're going to get an immediate response. But sometimes you got to really push them to wake them up. So all these experiments have been done. And what we've essentially found is that in terms of like characteristics of uh, a sleeping organism, they fulfill all of them. Okay, I think we're all on the same page now. Let's talk about the experiment we're focusing on in this episode. The researchers put bees into an incubator. This let them precisely control the light, temperature, and humidity to simulate the passing of time. So the design was put them in there with just a regular light-dark cycle, 12 hours of light, 12 hours of dark, so about a spring or early fall uh, photo period. And then we're gonna expose them to the pesticides through the food. So we had a control group that had no pesticide, and then we had varying doses of pesticide from 25 parts per billion all the way to 140 parts per billion in the soil. When I read the abstract of this research paper, I remember thinking, how do you know what's going on inside of a bee's circadian rhythm? I mean, a bee's brain is the size of a sesame seed. So, like Manuel was saying, there's no way you could attach electrodes the way you would to a human head to measure our brain waves. Here's what they did instead. So we're basically simulating the sun inside of this incubator. And what we do is we put the bees in little tubes where we can actually record their locomotor activity, so their movement, not their flight because they're small tubes, but they can actually walk. What the locomotor activity 
actually reflects the core circadian clock of the brain. So most of the shifts, not all of them, but most of the shifts that you see of the circadian clock and locomotor activity, you can actually track down to something that's going on in the brain clock. There are dozens of pesticides bees come across in the environment. So they narrowed it down to the two most common. We tested two. We tested thiamethoxam, which is one, in that, one of the mostly used ones, uh, and clothianidin, which is actually a metabolite of thiamethoxam, but it's a pesticide on its own right. It's actually much uh, stronger in the effect. If you go and buy a pesticide at Home Depot, or if you buy it to spray a field right now, here in the States, you'll probably come across pestinol. That's basically the main components of it, and it's a widely used pesticide. This time, Manuel wasn't working with nurse bees. He was working with older bees, the foragers, the ones that go out and collect pollen from flowers. How do you get a sample of bees that's composed only of foragers? We try to use the less invasive method. So we put like a little mesh in the entrance. They are trying to fly in and they basically land in the entrance of the hive. And you can just like put the tube on, the tube on top of them and they'll start climbing up the tube. So then you look like scoop up the tube and put a cap on it and you're done. you go to the next one. And no, this time he did not get stung. Uh, the first time my undergrad students saw me doing it, they were like, so are you wanna, aren't you going to wear a bee suit? Aren't you going to put like your veil on at least? And I was like, oh, no, no, we're fine. We're not opening the hive. So long as we don't like crush some bees, we're going to be okay. And we didn't crush any bees. So I've never gotten stung doing these collections. Now, if you're a skeptic or just a really careful scientist, you may be thinking, if these pesticides are really that widely used, how can we be sure the bees they're collecting for the control group haven't already ingested those pesticides? Great question. So we actually tested our hives for pesticides and we didn't find any trace amounts of pesticides. We then tested the food, so the control food, just to make sure we were being clean and tidy about our food preparation. We tested all the experimental food every single dose that we prepared. And then the really cool thing that we did was we tested the brains of the bees afterwards to see if we could detect the pesticide there. And we were really surprised that we could actually detect the pesticide there even five days after we had started the experiment. So that meant to us that even like this pesticide, just to, so you have an idea of the metabolism of them, they get processed fairly quickly through the bee system. So they kept consuming the pesticide even four or five days into the experiment. Yeah. Even though the pesticides they added to the experimental food was measured in parts per billion, they could still detect that in the bees' brains days after the bees had consumed the food laced with chemicals. What was going on in those bees' brains? How did the pesticides affect them? We'll get to that right after this break. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I'm part of a company called Buddha Bee Apiary. We install beehives in people's backyards and come take care of them for a monthly fee. This company has been around since 2019, and I'm really proud to say we're going to make it past our three-year mark, which is when a lot of small businesses fail. 
we've been lucky enough to have a near and dear group of people that believe in us enough to pay us to take care of bees in their yards. And for that, we're so grateful. I mean, honestly, it's a blessing, but we still have a long way to go. There's three of us, and I'm not gonna lie, it's really complicated to run this thing. Taking care of over 100 beehives across various homes is operationally intensive. We love it, but it's hard. Making a good living as a beekeeper is just hard. There's a whole lot we want to do, like raise our own locally adapted queens, get a van so I don't have to transport live bees in my tiny Toyota Corolla, maybe get health insurance down the line, or hire another beekeeper, crazy stuff like that. We're going to keep growing our host-to-hive program slowly, as we've been doing through word of mouth. A lot of times we have people reach out from outside of our area of North Carolina and they're really excited about our business. They want to support us, but it's not feasible for us to drive across the country to take care of a hive in another state, and also beekeeping varies geographically. So I want to build a community of people that supports this crazy business that isn't dependent on location. So here's my ask. If you like this podcast and want us to be able to dedicate more time to producing episodes, and you want to support a company that's helping people fall in love with honeybees, then head to our Patreon page. You can pledge a small contribution each month, as low as $5. But if you contribute more than $15 each month, we'll woodburn your name into one of the frames on our beehives. Essentially, you'll adopt a frame of honeybees, and each month we'll send you an update on how the hive you support is doing. It won't be kept in one of our customers' backyards, but on a little piece of land in Bahama, North Carolina. We call it our outyard. It's where we raise our bees. So you'll be supporting content that I put a lot of time and care into, and you'll have a little piece of a beehive in North Carolina. You may have questions about how this whole thing would work. I've tried to answer all of them in the FAQ on our Patreon page. Head there and check it out, even if you're just remotely curious. I know $15 a month is a lot of money. We're trying to do a really hard thing here. And if you think what we're doing is valuable and you want to support it, we'd be super grateful. If not, no worries. This podcast will still be free to listen to, so please enjoy it. More on that in a future episode. Back to Manuel with the results of the experiment. When we exposed the bees to the different doses of pesticides, we saw that their circadian rhythms started to unravel. So unravel in a sense that they were losing their their locomotor rhythms and they were becoming what we call arrhythmic, which basically just means lack of circadian rhythmicity. And then the the other big thing that we were seeing was that they were sleeping less. So one of the cool things we can do with these monitors is we know from previous work uh, that certain bouts or a certain length of time of an activity, which in this case is five minutes, can be a proxy for sleep. So we actually looked at sleep and we saw a significant decrease in sleep. Their sleep levels were actually cut in half. And just like humans, bees get disoriented when they don't get enough sleep. They rely on their internal sense of time to navigate. If their sense of time is disrupted, it affects their ability to find food. In the paper, which was published in Nature, you can see that bees' normal circadian rhythm looks like steady waves. After several days of eating food laced with pesticides, you either see no waves at all 
or movement at random times, or very little signs of sleep. The other thing that we did find that was really interesting to us, and it's something that we're actually trying to explore now, is that there's a relationship with, between the pesticide effect and light. They adjusted the light-dark cycles in the incubator to find out if this changes the effects of the pesticides. And in constant dark, the effect of the pesticides was blunted. It wasn't as bad. And then they tried constant light. We chose to do dim, a dim light because we know from previous studies from my dissertation that depending on the light intensity, you can actually increase arrhythmicity just as a default. Now, when we put them in the constant light, we saw that the effects that we were seeing in the first experiment where we had the light-dark cycles were amplified. So we saw more arrhythmicity, significantly higher differences in sleep. And we were like, okay, so there's definitely a, a play here between the light signaling to the circadian clock and the pesticide. So it seems that what our working hypothesis right now is that the pesticides are acting as chemical light in a sense. It's like they're keeping the bees awake when they shouldn't be. My reaction when I heard pesticides acting as chemical light was one of disbelief at first. I don't know, it just sounded too sci-fi to me. But it's really not. It could be that the part of the brain that's affected by light is the same part of the brain that's affected by pesticides. So pesticides in the amount they're used aren't lethal, but there's a lot of things that don't kill you but make you really sick and then kill you in sort of roundabout ways. And that's what's happening here. But what we don't know is exactly how the pesticides interact with the brain, like what is physically occurring in the brain. That's what Manuel and the researchers he works with are up to next. We want to study the mechanistic underlying effect of this pesticide. So what's the pathway that the pesticide is using in a sense? So, okay, is it really going to the light signaling pathway leading to the circadian clock? And the one big thing about the bees right now is that there's not a lot of molecular tools in the sense you can't, you've probably seen this online where you can take neurons and actually light them up with a green fluorescent protein and make them fluoresce. So that's unavailable in the bee right now. So the grant that we got is to actually design these tools to start tackling some of these questions. So that's where, we're, where our mind is at right now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Veil. That was Manuel Giannoni Guzman from Vanderbilt University. If you want to learn more about his research, I'll leave a link in the show notes. And if you want us to be able to keep making episodes like this happen, you can also find a link to our Patreon page there as well. Talk soon.